You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1014 of the Locked on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Sunday evening into Monday. And today's show is brought to you by the Locker Room. Download the Locker Room app from the iOS app store. Find one of our Locked on Rooms. Locker Room, changing the way we talk sports. Today's podcast will be myself and Derek Bodner of The Athletic. Derek's in front of the podcast and a very, very smart basketball observer slash writer for The Athletic. Covers the Sixers there as well as the NBA at large. So that's coming up momentarily. I want to plug things at the top, though. Uh, We did six shows last week, five general episodes and also an emergency podcast on the DeAndre Hunter injury. If you missed any of that, please subscribe and catch up to the podcast. I really appreciate all the support, rate, review, and uh, listen. Thank you for listening, and now we'll dive into today's show. So, uh, Game 4 is arriving on Monday night for the Hawks at home. Kind of a must-win, at least as close to a must-win as they could possibly get for Atlanta, down 2-1 in the series. And I will say this at the top, it's sort of an uphill battle on paper for Atlanta, at least in the market and the way that things are being perceived for the Hawks right now. Our friends about online have the Sixers at minus 600 in the betting market to win the series and the Hawks at plus 460. For those of you that don't love the betting market stuff, uh, the implied odds of that would be over 85% chance for Philadelphia to win the series. That might be a little bit high for me, but Philadelphia is definitely the favorite, unfortunately, now for the Hawks because they have home court. They have home court, and without Hunter, it's very clear that Philadelphia is probably the better team on paper. So the Hawks have some uphill battle to climb. They're not dead by any means. In fact, if they win on if they win the game on Monday, um, things will definitely swing towards them in the betting market. You would imagine um, back to two two, even without home court, uh, they become very very live in the series if they can win on Monday. So that goes without saying, but uh, that's sort of setting the stage for the big picture and the perception of the series right now. Today on the road to the finals, there's going to be a playoff coverage. It's brought to you by Michelob Ultra. It's only worth it if you enjoy it. And 95 calories, 2.6 cards. We can all enjoy the games a little bit more this season. As for game four, uh, injuries, nothing terribly new that we haven't covered, but I will get into that briefly here now. Hunter, Reddish, Goodwin still out for the Hawks. No changes at all from game three for Atlanta. Reddish, by the way, did nothing live at practice today, according to McMillan on Sunday. He's out for game four, and also it doesn't feel like to me that he's incredibly close. He's obviously getting closer, but until he plays five-on-five live in practice, it's hard to see him playing in a game. That's kind of how the Hawks have operated for a long time now with the training staff. Until a guy can prove that he can go full full steam, they don't like to throw guys out there, and especially in a playoff series after he's been out for so long. And this is a sort of a caveat too, but... After a couple of long breaks between games, the rest of the series, beginning in Game 4, is every other day. It's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then Sunday would be Game 7 if that were to happen. So even less time for anybody to get sort of back up to speed, and that goes for Cam, who's been out for a long time. As for Philadelphia, Danny Green is out for the Sixers. After he hurt his calf, he's going to be out for two or three weeks, so that's going to take him out for the rest of the series for sure. And Bede is still questionable officially, but as we'll get into with Derek, Everyone has to assume he's going to play until he doesn't. Um, but Nate McMillan was actually asked about the adjustments after practice on Sunday, just overall, and basically said that he wasn't going to share anything whatsoever, which is not a huge surprise, but he kind of just said, look, I'm not going to talk about adjustments, which is not surprising again. But there was a follow-up later on. He was actually asked about Danny Green being out in his absence and how that might change things for Philadelphia and what they may do, and here's what he had to say about that. Speaking of adjustments, um, the um, 76ers obviously now don't have Danny Green for this series. Um since that injury occurred so early in the game, did that give you um, a good feel for how you think they will adjust? And so 
how you have to prepare for a lineup without Denny Green? Yeah, well, there's several, several different ways they could go. Uh, Kostamas played a lot more minutes uh, uh, when Danny went out, uh, but they, you know, you know, Doc will uh, do what's best for his team as far as, uh, you know, starting a group and, uh, you know, trying to keep his bench uh, intact. Uh, so we know there are several options they, they could go to, uh, and we just have to be ready for uh, whatever adjustment uh, that they make. But I don't, I don't think uh, because Green went out and the starting lineup that they came out with in the third quarter uh, guarantees that that's the lineup that they're going to uh, start uh, tomorrow night. Uh, he has a few guards, a few ways he could go, um, you know, with uh, that starting unit. And, you know, whether he wants to put a shooter out there or put another defender out there, he has that option with, uh, with, the, the, with his roster. So not, not a ton in there, obviously, from McMillan, but um, I'm not really expecting much from him, as I said a second ago, about just public-facing comments at this point in a long series. I will say this, as we get into it with Derek in a second as well, but there were lots of Hawks fans who are lamenting the absence of Danny Green. I think that having him would actually still make them better, potentially. Um, he's not been playing great in the series, but he's still a loss for Philadelphia, but I will be interested to see what they do in contrast, whether it's Korkmaz or um, more Tyrese Maxey or Shake Milton or whatever they do here in the series to make up for that, for that Danny Green hole could benefit the Hawks eventually in the series. Last thing, uh, Bet Online, our friends there, had the Hawks as three-point underdogs right now for Game 4. On Monday, this is as of Sunday night, of course. That was about, a, I would say, 1.5, maybe 1 point, something like, something like that, before Game 3. So the market has swung against the Hawks a little bit, seemingly based on what ha happened in Game 2 and Game 3. You know, it's kind of surprising, at least on some level, to see the Hawks as 3.0 dogs in a, again, a pretty much must-win game at home. That's uh, a little bit of a slap in the face, I would say, to the Hawks. And we'll see how they, we'll see how they play in this spot. Um, I think we'll, I think we should see some aggressiveness from McMillan that we haven't seen so far. This is a, the first time in the, in the playoffs that you could certainly say the Hawks are now back against the wall. You know, I know they were 1-1 against New York, but that was in New York, and then they came home and won Game Three, and they were obviously in control of the series. So this is the first time in this era that the Hawks are now sort of, again, backed into a corner. So we'll see maybe more lineup changes. We'll see some more of the big lineup, potentially, with Gallinari and Collins playing together. We could see more of Kevin Herter with the starters. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we'll talk about all that stuff after Game 4. But uh, go ahead and subscribe and all that, all that stuff to the podcast, and we'll get into it when it arrives. All right, before we get to Derek, a word from our sponsors on today's podcast, and the first of which is Indeed. Imagine you're the hiring expert for your company. What you really need is to make your shortlist of quality candidates. You need a hiring partner who makes your life easier, and you need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three, post-screening interview all on Indeed. Get your quality short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster. Only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications and schedule and complete your video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent fast and easy. With tools like Indeed Instant Match, which gives you quality candidates whose resume on Indeed fits your job description immediately, and Indeed skills tests that on average reduce hiring time by 27%. You can choose from more than 130 skills tests or add your own, then add your must-have requirements so that you only have to pay for your applications that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all of the other job sites combined. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash locked. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash locked. Indeed.com slash locked. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Today's show is also brought to you by the good folks at Bill Bar. 
Built Bar is wonderful, as I always say on the podcast, but what is your favorite Built Bar flavor? Did you know that Built Bar has nine delicious flavors, plus the occasional limited time flavor? And when you talk about Built Bar, it's always a passionate thing for people that really enjoy their own flavors. And if you don't know the flavors, you're really missing out. It's coconut, coconut almond, cherry, raspberry, and many more. There's something for everyone in my favorite flavor right now, anyway. I have many favorites, to be honest with you. But right now, I'm really loving the peanut butter brownie. That's just one that I'm really enjoying. I like to dive into that as much as possible. I always uh, talk about how much I enjoy Built Bar, and that is the one that I am diving into at this moment in time. If you haven't tried the flavors, though, get a mixed box right now where you get two of each of the nine available flavors at this moment in time. And not only are the Built Bar flavors fantastic, they're also very healthy. Most flavors have 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, only 4 grams of sugar, only 4 grams of net carbs, and a couple others have even more protein if you enjoy that kind of thing. Order today, get that raspberry, mint brownie, or whatever you would like, and if you do it in the near future, you go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKED15, 15% off your first order with Built Bar. Use promo code LOCKED15, 15% off at BuiltBar.com. I am joined now by the great Derek Bodner of The Athletic. How are you, sir, on this fine well, that, Saturday? That is completely undeserved, but I am doing well. Thank you. <laughs> uh I assume you probably forgot this. You've been on this podcast before. It's been a long time. I yep. used to I used to bug you, um, and I, now I try not to. You're you're a busy man, but uh, you know I wanted to. Not only do you cover the Sixers very well, but I also trust your eyes and know you're watching this series very closely. So it's sort of the double whammy of getting the Philly perspective and also just the basketball perspective. So I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, no, it is uh, it is my pleasure. Uh, and and you'll love this at the top of it to say this. I I got confused for Rich Hoffman at the arena in Game Three, which is which is okay. Funny. Okay. I thought, I thought you'd appreciate that as uh, as a colleague of yours. Uh, I, I mean, it's probably better than getting confused for me. Uh, so I don't <laughs> wish that on anyone. So I guess that's a step up for sure. Uh, I thought I'd, I thought you'd enjoy that. Um, <laughs> at any rate, uh, the series, of course, it, it's two one. We're recording this between Game Three and Game Four. I want to ask you, and we'll, we'll of course dive into some topics, but I want to ask you kind of what your general feeling is, mood is around this series now that things have pretty much swung in Philly's favor the last two and a half games almost, but definitely the, definitely the last two games. And, uh, you know, at least in the market, it seems like the Hawks are a pretty big underdog at this point. Is that how you feel in the series? And uh, what's the temperature like up there? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, I felt like if you came in uh, and – you got and Joel Embiid played. I thought the Sixers were pretty strong favorites. Um, and the fact that Joel Embiid has played and played exceptionally well, uh, you know, I think you had that first game, first half of the first game specifically hiccup. But since then, it has sort of played out. I think how you would mostly expect. Um, I think the Sixers have done a little better of a job on Trey Young again after that first half of that first game than maybe I would have expected coming in. And I think Embiid has been a little better than even a healthy Embiid I would have expected coming in. So I think that will, you know, sort of normalize a little bit over time. Although I don't know how much. I think Joel's going to have a lot of success here over the remaining part of this, uh, this, this series. But I think more or less it has played out how I would have expected. It's just that first half of that first game when they came out and they had no. It, it's like they hadn't watched any Trey Young <laughs> over the previous couple of months. That stunned me. Um, and the way he was able to get where he wanted and manipulate the Sixers, it really was like he had them on a string. And it took them so long, and they were so slow to adjust. That stunned me. But again, after that, I think it has played out mostly according to script. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, 
I saw a couple of your tweets and read, read your stuff, and also I talked to Jackson Frank and some people on the Hawks side, and everyone kind of had the same reaction to that first half. Um, the coverages yeah. from Philly and just kind of baffled by it. Not to take anything anything away from Trey whatsoever. Trey was awesome, and you still have to be really, really good. But uh, the plan didn't make a whole lot of sense for for Philly at the outset. No, of game if you're one. if you're going to sit there and say, all right, let's list out exactly what you don't do. It is don't put Danny Green on Trey Young and go into a deep drop coverage. Like, I'm pretty sure Rich and I actually said those exact words on our preview podcast. Um, Danny Green is probably the fourth best defender equipped to defend Trey Young on a Sixers roster. I think I, I think I get what Doc Rivers was trying to do. I think he was trying to keep Ben Simmons out of early foul trouble. I think he was a little concerned or at least unsure of what he would get with Joel Embiid moving in space with that torn meniscus. Uh, but I think he overreacted by an order of magnitude. Uh, you know, the way I've, I said this in, in my own podcast, the biggest threat, the biggest, the way that uh, Ben Simmons can impact the series the most is by defending Trey Young and getting through screens and, and making it so that he is not completely disrupting your defense by getting into the center of the paint. Um, the, the, the reason why Ben Simmons getting in foul trouble is such a big risk is because you don't have him to do that. Well, if you're just going to concede half the game where he's not defending him at all, it's like, it's like you're putting yourself in foul trouble because you're negating the biggest reason why you want him on the court. It was uh, the way the way I phrase it, it is it was a um, solution that was much more damaging than the problem they were trying to solve. Uh, so I think it was a pretty big mistake. And it, I mean, it let Trey get get going. Um, and like I said, it's not just Trey's points. Um, you know, that first game of the series was the most corner three pointers six have given up all year. And that's a part to Trey's skill set. That's made worse by the way they came out and defended him. I was I was pretty stunned. But since that point, it has been almost all Ben Simmons or Matisse Thibel when they've been on the court, which I think is the right call. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the defensive approach, so I guess we'll talk about that now. Uh, I know the Hawks attempted, I believe, three corner threes in all of Game 3, which is a yeah. tiny, tiny number for a team that has gotten a lot of those this year. And as well, you mentioned, what, got a When ton. they have, like, 17 in Game 1? Yeah, it was a lot in Game like 1. That. It was, yeah. like, in the mid-teens somewhere for sure. And, you know, going down to three, you know, that's kind of outlier low still, but it does speak to the adjustments that have been made by Philadelphia. And Trey has still been fine. I think he wasn't great in Game 2. He was better in Game 3. But, you know, they kind of figured out that, um, you know, you can't just give away the entire store. You got you to choose something to let Trey do or, you know, at least try to force Trey to do. But what else have you seen defensively um, in these last two games where I think the Hawks, at least in my view, have still scored relatively effectively? The offense has not been the problem for the Hawks, I don't think, in this entire series. But obviously, they've not done as much damage in the last two games as they did in game one. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two things. There's a way that they have defended Trey Young. And, and like I said... The it's not just the points he scores because you're right. What do you end up with uh, in game three? Like 20, like, yeah, 28 in game three. Something yeah, like that. um, that's fine. And when you say we're gonna talk about Trey Young, like you couch it with, he's going to get it. That's fine. The assists that he was generating, though, weren't like it. A bunch of them, I think three or four of them came in transition, which is going to happen. He's he's too good of a passer not for that to happen. Um, but there weren't all that many. He had a couple of lobs. And again, it's going to happen. That lob threat is just such a tough thing to defend. That's going to happen. But they weren't completely out of position. There weren't as many. There was maybe one or two kickouts to the corners, um, whereas in the first game there was every trip down the floor. It seemed like. So I think they've done a better job not overhelping completely. Uh, I think they've done a better job just sort of like living with. All right, he's going to draw out a switch and get to Bias Harris. Um, we'll live with that. Uh, whereas in game one, I think they overreacted to that. Um, ben Simmons is very good at getting over screens, so I think they've had to. They didn't have. They've been able to avoid really problematic switches a little bit. Um, and they just haven't been turning the ball over nearly as much. And that was the other sort of untold story of game one. It wasn't just their half-court defense on Trey Young, as problematic as that was. It was the fact that they were 
you know, barfing all over themselves for the first half and turning <laughs> it over every chance they got. And that got um, Atlanta out in transition. That generated a bunch of easy buckets for them. And the Sixers were, you know, the, even when the Sixers got back in transition, it would have semi-transition or something to get an, an unset defense, which again is an environment where Trey Young can really pick you apart. So I think they just did a much better job of not making the mistakes they made in game one, of letting Trey Young sort of get his uh, within the confines and not creating quite as many open opportunities for uh, for the Hawks deep plethora of, of good role players, but role players who I think if um, you don't overreact to, you can contend with. Yeah, that, that all makes sense. And I, I was going to sort of flip it around and ask you this at some point. I guess I, I probably should just do it now. Is there anything that, that the Hawks could do that would scare you or at least threaten that they haven't done so far? I'm, I'm trying to find adjustments and things that I might even recommend them doing offensively. Yeah. And there's not like an obvious thing, I don't think, but maybe something stands out to you that would uh, at least put the flag up for you on the Philly side. No, I think I think a lot of it's going to come down to the defensive side of the court. Um, yeah, I agree. And, I mean, <laughs> part of it is, you know, doing a better job of defensive rebounding so they can get out in transition. Part of it is getting back and, and you know, forcing the turnovers that was hurting the Sixers. Um, part of it is just, I mean, it is so tough with Joel um, that it's, it's it, I, no, truthfully, I offensively, I think, I still think they're, especially in the first quarter or so of game three, I thought they moved the ball pretty well. Um, I'm not entirely sure how they're going to track, you know, that sort of like double drag that they burn the Sixers on so badly in game one. I think the Sixers had a pretty good answer for that. Um, no, offensively, I think, I think they're doing probably about what you would expect. Um, like I said, I think at some point Trey is going to get a little bit hotter, uh, from the perimeter than he has been these last two games. And that, I think it's going to cause the Sixers to, uh, react a little bit. Um, but I think, I think most of their problems come, come down to defensively, yeah. which isn't shocking for sure. And that's kind of what I've been saying too. You know, I, I think the Hawks, um, have not, you know, they've, they've been a lot colder from three the last two games, which was probably inevitable after game one. And, uh, Trey has not been as dominant, but in general, especially when you factor in Philadelphia being, you know, a, an elite defense, um, the Hawks have scored as well, or maybe even more than I thought that they were going to on a per possession basis in the series. It just comes down to defense and uh, we'll get into that momentarily. But first I want to throw to a word from our sponsors on today's podcast. BetOnline is the easiest and the fastest way to bet on all of your sports action. Baseball season is definitely here and in full swing. You can track all the action at BetOnline.ag. Plus, in addition to baseball, the NBA playoffs are here, as you're listening to all the time on this podcast. And uh, beyond that, all the latest news, odds, and info for all of your sporting needs. Of course, you have MLB and NBA, and you have NHL, UFC, MMA, golf, tennis, auto racing, horse racing, entertainment bets, all that you can think of. It's all there at BetOnline.ag. Before the next pitch or dribble, head on over to Bet Online on your laptop and mobile device. Check out all the great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest information that you can find all in one place. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get into the game and get in on the action. Head to the website now or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with BetOnline.ag. That's a 50% welcome bonus if you use the promo code Locked On. The promo code, one more time, is Locked On for a 50% welcome bonus with the site on your first deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, Derek, uh, let us talk about the Hawks' defense, or at least their attempt to play defense. Uh, I will lead with this question first. Knowing the answer, uh, I'm sure you've seen this as well. My, my mentions are populated with Hawks fans that think Joel Embiid is actually not hurt at this point in time, Derek. 
Uh, and I try to tell them that he, he he is injured. He just doesn't look like it, which I I, I understand on some level. I think some some of it, maybe most of it, is tongue in cheek. But uh, Joel has obviously been incredible, especially not being 100%. Uh, he's just been a menace, which everyone has seen in this series, uh, in addition to the somewhat joking question about his injury. Um, is that a concern? Like, is there any is there any question if something did, like didn't happen that he's going to keep playing? Because I, I know they're going to keep listing him as questionable, I, I guess as they should, because he's at least somewhat banged up. But uh, no chance he's not going to play unless that's something weird happens, right? No, I mean, there would have to be a pretty significant setback. Like, the typical swelling or pain that he's going to have to fight through. I expect him to fight through it. I think he's really locked in. He's, he's willing to take whatever risks are necessary because he feels like they have a chance to go to the finals. Um, so I don't expect him to have a day where he's going to be out unless there is a setback, which isn't impossible. Um, I do worry a little bit here. You know, we're, he's been pretty lucky. You know, there were two games off between games two and three, yep. and then there were three or two games off between three and four. So there's been spaced out a little more. I do worry a little bit in the back half of the um, series, whether or not the the every other day cadence might prove a little more problematic to that knee and whether the swelling might be a little bit worse. But no, I like I, I think he's going to play most of these games unless there is a pretty significant setback. Yeah, there was the one moment where he came up pretty gingerly going into a timeout. Um, they were in the middle of a yep. run in game in game three where, uh, you know, it was kind of an eyebrow razor. And, uh, you know, I, I think personally, I, I hope he plays and um, is healthy and all that stuff. And I, I want to see the Hawks compete against the uh, Sixers at, the, at their full strength. But, you know, all eyes have been on that. You know, it was impossible. I'm sure you had the same problem trying to preview the series um, yeah. with no information. It's like, all right, well, if Embiid plays this, if Embiid plays um, at 50%, this. Uh, it was so hard to discuss the series before it started and of course when it started he's been every bit as good as you could have hoped yeah no he really has um and and you're right when you're previewing the series it was well this is what i think will happen if this happens and this <laughs> is what i think will happen if that happens so i'll kind of like split the difference here and, and we'll just call it a prediction when really it's admitting i have no idea uh, he is obviously very important to what they do on both sides uh, you see that a lot when they try going to their bench you know one of their problems right now uh, and they've i mean they've gotten Huge lifts out of Shake Milton in game two. And quite frankly, I think they were down one when Shake came in um, and he had been out of the rotation. He'd been really bad for a month or so um, to get that lift and get that win was potentially series changing. Um, but they got a huge lift from Shake in game two and then from Furcon in game three. There's still a lot of questions with that bench. And part of it is because he's Joel Embiid is so integral to what the Sixers do offensively. You bring in, uh, you know, someone like Dwight Howard, and all of a sudden you run into all kinds of spacing concerns with Howard and Thibel and Simmons if you try to prop that up, and you end up relying a lot on young guards, and the young guards so far have come on through. But if Embiid misses any significant time, and one of the scenarios you're going through before the series is, okay, well, what if he plays game two and game four and five, but he misses two others, and, like, how does all that shake out? Yep. Um, for him to be a reliable day-in, day-out, and then not have to really game plan for all right, here's a contingency plan, or here we're trying to figure this out on game two on the fly, um, because that was the one game they lost against the the Wizards in the previous series, was when he went out. Um, it's so much easier to play without Joel Embiid when you know you're playing without Joel Embiid. And one of the things I was really worried about was they're going to come into the series and never really know whether he was going to be available or not. Um, so yeah, they've gotten extremely lucky in terms of his availability, uh, and it is, I mean, here's earth-shattering news. This is why I'm a an analyst, uh, <laughs> his availability has really changed the series. 
Yeah, I, mean, I actually covered that. Well, covered's loose, but I wrote about that game for uh, loss in the Wizard series, and it was as simple as they just uh, they were not prepared for life without Joel in that in that game. It, it felt like 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 the, the bottom card no. just fell out as soon as he left yep. the game. And um, yeah, that interesting. Obviously, I hope that doesn't have to happen in the series, but that is something that could happen, I suppose. Um, I know this is not the way you're covering this series necessarily, but. What have you thought of the way the Hawks have tried to slow him down? Because they've obviously had no success in doing so. But has anything stood out to you in Atlanta's approach to trying to defend Joel or, or not? Uh, they're obviously not, not succeeding, but anything interesting to you there? Yeah, I mean, I thought I quite honestly, I thought Capello would do a little better job one on one. Me too. Than he has done. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you look at the East and a lot of the first of all, Joel Embiid's just a much better offensive player than he was last year or two years ago. He has progressively gotten better. Uh, and more diverse in his game. But when you look at some of the series he struggled in in previous years, a lot of those players, um, from Marcus Hall to even Al Horford gave him trouble at times, to Aaron Baines, a lot of those players had left the Eastern Conference um, or aren't the player they previously were. And you looked at it and you said, all right, well, Clint Capella is one of the few who has a, not a chance to defend him one-on-one, -on -one, but maybe he could at least withstand the initial impact, the initial point of contact, and give his help defenders enough time to figure out what to do to make the rotations. Uh, and he has really struggled and, and much more than I thought. And Clint Capel is a fantastic defender, but Joel Embiid has just gone to another level in terms of his size and versatility and skill level. Um, so I think that surprised me a little bit is the fact that he has struggled as much as he has. And then also the, I mean, the Atlanta double teams, I don't think have frustrated him once all series. Uh, and that is in part, you know, a credit to Joel. Uh, that was something that in previous years he was really bad at, uh, was recognizing those double teams. And he's this year has been completely different in that regard. And it helps when you have, uh, you know, Seth Curry and Danny Green shooting instead of Josh Richardson and Al Horford. That was certainly a, a, a big change in his world. Um, but I also think the Atlanta double teams have been a little bit, um, you know, they haven't been hard enough at times. There's been a lot where it seems like people are caught in a sort of middle ground there where they aren't really impacting Joel, but they're, they're leaving open passing lanes. They just haven't been quite as decisive and quick and on point uh, as I think you would need to disrupt a, a score and somebody who is really thinking the game at a level he never has before like Joel. Um, so I think they're going to continue to struggle. Um, you know, I think Joel Embiid is just locked in to a level that I haven't seen uh, in, in, in the time I've been covering him. Uh, and he is, I mean, there's just nobody right now, certainly in the Eastern Conference, who can really match up with him. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, beyond the Capella component, and I agree with you there, uh, I wonder, even, al even allowed, you know, the Hawks just haven't done what they're doing in this series with really any regularity. And most of the time, you know, Embiid is one of the very, very, very short list of players that would ever get double team with regularity, particularly on a team that has Clint Capella on it. The Hawks have just not yeah. done this very often, if at all, really. And I wonder if that's at least a small part of this. Obviously, Embiid's been fantastic, but just you mentioned their tentativeness at times with their doubles and a lack of comfort levels, what, what I've kind of seen watching games back. Like, they're just not... I mean, again, this is probably only part of it, but they seem like they're not 100% locked into what they need to be doing when they're trying to double. And I think part of that might be that they're just not used to doing it. Yeah, I mean, this is a league where you don't you don't double the post because nobody yeah. tries to play in the post. And doubling the post is different than what you would do to defend a pick and roll, obviously, to defend a, a perimeter ISO score. Uh, it is it is something that I think takes some practice. And that was where, you know, Nick Nurse and the Raptors, it almost doesn't matter who the Raptors have on their roster. They are very good at, at flustering Joel Embiid, a little bit with um, Boston, too. 
but it is something that you have to have sort of in your bag coming into the series because it's real tough to learn on the fly. I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, and they've had a little bit more time in between. We talked about this a second ago with the extra the extra day, but you can't, you know, you can't relearn everything on one practice in between games. Like it's they, they I'm sure they would have planned for doing this against NBA at some point, but they needed to do it even more than I thought they were going to, as we talked about with Capella. And I don't know, we'll, we'll see if they're any better at it in game four and beyond. But is that what you would do if, as the Hawks? Like you just have to keep doubling and hope that you figure out what your issues are. I mean, there's there's the other school of thought that I've heard where maybe you just don't ever double and make Joel score 50 a game. And he might actually do that to you if you didn't double him. But where would you, what would you be doing as the Hawks? Just try to double and do it better? No, I think I think you have to double and hope that he makes mistakes and hope that he commits the turnovers and gets you out in transition. I think if you let him go one-on-one, he's just he's going to shoot 25 free throws a game. And that might be a slight exaggeration. And I'm sure it may not Hawks, fans, <laughs> Hawks fans listening to this are probably pounding the table yelling about the referees as I say that. Um, but he would he would – I think that would be tough to sustain, um, especially because it's not like the Sixers don't have other mismatches they can exploit if they wanted to get Tobias Harris going, um, even without that double team coming his way. So I think I think you have to double team Joel Embiid. Hope the Sixers, especially now that you lose Danny Green, and Danny Green is obviously not a great individual one-on-one offensive player, but he does move the ball around pretty well. He does give you spacing. Uh, so you lose Danny Green for the rest of the series. Um, you know, make some of the Sixers' young guards rotate the ball, swing the ball, make decisions, and and potentially make mistakes. I think you have to try to get the ball out of Joel Embiid's hands. Yeah, uh, I was gonna ask you about Danny Green. Uh, you know. All the jokes that you would expect were flying about, you know, good good for the Hawks. That, uh, sorry, good, good for the Sixers that he was out. I think that's not true. I think Danny Green is, was not playing particularly well early in the series, but that is a loss. Do you expect Philly to kind of do what they did in Game 3 rotation-wise? You know, more Korkmaz, uh, you know, rely on Shake a little bit more? Is that the, just the general plan, you think, without Danny in the rest of the series? Yeah, I mean, we haven't. And you're right, Danny was struggling big time. First of all, with the defense on Trey Young, which we talked about. But he was also shooting 30% from the field. I don't think he had made a three-pointer in his two-plus two games that he had played. Uh, so he was definitely struggling in a big way. Um, but he he was a player who, when he's playing well, and he's been playing well for most of, most of the season, uh, he really does help the Sixers spacing, ball movement, team defense. That is, and quite frankly, they're just not, uh, when you get out of the starting lineup, you get to young, outside of George Hill, you get to young, inexperienced guards real quickly. Um, so I think that is something that Doc is a little tentative to lean on too much. I think part of the reason Doc has had a 10 or 11 man rotation for a lot of this playoff series is he just doesn't know what he's going to get out of Tyrese Maxey or shake Milton or Furkan Korkmaz on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and I think he pretty much throws them in, see who's playing well and tries to ride the hot hand in that regard. As he likes to call it, feed the pig. Well, yeah. now you're going to rely on them even more because you don't have, you know, 25 to 30 minutes of Danny Green to lean on. Um, so yeah, I think it'll be a loss. Uh, we haven't had a chance to talk to doc since the news came out that, uh, Danny would miss two to three weeks. Uh, so we, you know, you don't know for sure. Not that Doc would admit it anyway, um, right. because he likes to be cagey with this kind of stuff. As if, you know, uh, the favorite thing he likes to do is every day, well, we don't know whether or not Joel Embiid's going to play. We'll see how he looks after shoot around. Well, you know whether he's going to play. And like, yeah. Atlanta, Atlanta's <laughs> not going to change your game plan because you're doing the, you know, ASCII shrug emoji. Um, but he likes to play that gamesmanship. So he he's not going to tell us anyway. Before he has to, I would expect it will probably be Korkmaz, uh, like who, like he he started in the second half of Game Three. I think they sort of want that shooting to complement Embiid and Simmons in that starting lineup, and and also I think it helps that it makes Trey Young work a little bit. Um, you know, Korkmaz is whether Trey Young ends up defending Curry or Korkmaz, 
Um, both of them run through screens. Uh, and while you don't fear Korkmaz all that much, he will move more off the ball. He will run through more pick and rolls or DHOs on the perimeter than Danny Green does. Make Trey expend just a tiny bit of energy. I think that's where Doc's head is at as well. And then he can bring his defenders. Um, because, I mean, you're starting that, line, uh, that, that um, starting lineup with a base of Embiid and Simmons. You're going to be able to compete defensively anyway. Bring Matisse and George Hill off the bench to have a, a strong second unit defensively. I think that's probably where he's going to go. Yeah, and you have to worry about Korkmaz. Not that, like you say, he's not this massive threat, but he he can he can get hot. We, we've seen him do that a number of times, and he's got to be guarded. And you got to stay you got to stay close to him. This is more of an aside, but uh, what's going on with George Hill? George Hill does not look uh, crisp to me. No, he doesn't. Uh, he's been real up and down since joining the Sixers. Uh, started off slow when he got there. Played decently at times against the Wizards, but has been real down here in the last three or four games. Even going back into the tail end of that Wizards series. You know, he had that. He was out for a couple of months there with that thumb injury. He just hasn't looked completely the same since he got back. But And you add in the fact that he had like a three-month layoff in terms of playing, yep. joining new teammates, joining new coaching staff. He just he doesn't look the same. And I don't know how much of that is injury-related. Probably little. Um, but I think there's a lot of things contributing. That. Yeah, I, I agree. He has been at best at times where you, you barely remember he's on the court and at worst where he's making some pretty head-scratching decisions. So, yeah, he's been... Not, I think, what the Sixers expected. Not that they would ever admit it, though. Yeah. I mean, even the mental stuff, like you just mentioned at the end there, like George Hill, part of the appeal there is that he's supposed to be this rock-solid veteran. He's made a couple of interesting uh, decisions, we'll say. Um, at any rate, I-, I wanted to ask you before we get out of here about Ben Simmons because, you know, he's obviously always a polarizing... I give you a lot of credit. We have gone 30 minutes or 21 minutes in this podcast, and this is the first time we were talking about Ben Simmons. Listen. Whenever I do a radio hit in Philadelphia, whenever I do a- someone else's podcast, that is like question number one why will ben simmons not shoot so oh i'm not uh, even gonna, i'm not even gonna like, do that like i okay, have no i okay. have no interest in that whatsoever uh I, I try to not be a hot take guy so i'm not gonna do it for you Derek. but well there uh, are definitely a lot of hot takes out there about ben simmons oh in both directions. always yeah and i have no interest in that honestly within the, within this series i will say he was really good in the third quarter in particular uh, in game three um but you know what do you make of him overall in this series is more my question and also i have been someone mostly because the Hawks are having all kinds of trouble defending. I have advocated them to at least try hacking Ben. And the one time they did it in the series, they were winning and I wouldn't have done it then, which was uh, a yeah. bit weird yeah. for McMillan. Uh, but especially <clears throat> the last two games, the second half, when, when you're down, you know, 15, that's like the time to do it. And Nate hasn't done it. And I wonder, uh, again, this is, that's more of a secondary question of whether you would, uh, as the Hawks do that. But uh, Simmons has had a weird series as he's often doing, but uh, what have you thought of the way he's played so far? Yeah, he is uh, the most unique player. Uh, and I say this having covered Markel Fultz, who literally forgot his shooting mechanics. How to shoot, yes. He is the most polarizing, unique, frustrating, incredible player I've ever covered. Um, the way he has grown, and look, when he was at LSU, he didn't give one bleep about defense. <laughs> now, granted, he I, I don't know why I curse, so I'm going to just bleep. Um and, you know, a lot of that was the atmosphere. Uh, he, first of all, he was stuck in the center of a 2-3 zone, and that, was, that didn't cater to his strengths at all. Part of it was that it was college, and I think he just viewed college as a stepping stone to the NBA, uh, and he was biding his time. But the way that he's then come in and bought in 110% on the defensive side of the court. Like, when you start talking about, and he, he was runner-up and defensive player of the year, and when you start talking about the contenders, if you want to go night-to-night consistency 
diversity. Um, there is nobody in the league right now who I think can match Ben Simmons. He could go from defending Trey Young, as we're seeing, to Jason Tatum, to you can put him at center at times, and he can defend center man-to-man. He, you start losing a lot in terms of weak side help uh, defense, but he can legitimately defend all five, all five positions at a high level, at a high intensity, all game long. And it is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. In terms of dif- diversity, knowledge, consistency, uh, he has bought in a way that I never would have a- a dreamed. And when you take 6'10", with those physical skills, and his understanding of the game defensively, and his reactions and just instincts, it is a joy to watch on a nightly basis. It is also... I've never covered a player where you have to... You, typically, everything I just said, you have to spend a lot of time... I mean, you can attest this with Trey Young, getting them to buy into that aspect of the game. The part that you have to get Ben Simmons to buy into is just not only take a jump shot, which I've all but given up Give on. up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's over, I think. <laughs> take a layup. Take an open layup. This Sixers Twitter just went on flames in the... I think it was about four minutes left in the second quarter of Game 3... And he blows by John Collins, which he can do. Um, the, the Hawks really don't have, and this is where Hunter's absence really hurts them, not only with Simmons, but also um, Tobias Harris. And I think that was a very key loss. Oh, yeah. But he blew, I, and maybe more against the Sixers than other teams, but he, he blows by John Collins, has an easy reverse layup, and kicks it out to Seth Curry, who's not even open on the perimeter, with four seconds left on the shot clock, six end up getting shot clock violation. And that is, in, in the half court, that is very much the Ben Simmons experience, where he has these mismatches. And again, I'm throwing out the, and I the, I would love so much what I love, a catch-and-shoot corner three-pointer. Not for his own points, but just because you're, I mean, you're building an offense around a post-score in 2021 in, in the NBA. You need as much spacing as you can get. And there are times where Joel Bede will have to navigate not only double teams, but triple teams, because nobody's really concerned with, um, you know, having to recover back to Ben Simmons. So there is, um, you know, forget that. But just when you have a mismatch, when you have John Collins on you, maybe in the, in the next series, when, if the Sixers do advance, um, when you have, they might try to hide Kyrie Irving on you because they don't believe that you're going to even try to take advantage of that mismatch. That's what I think sets Sixers fans off. So he is the most I've never, and I've covered a lot of polarizing figures on this team. A lot of head scratchers. Like I said, Mark Fultz legitimately just forgot <laughs> shooting mechanics. Yep. Uh, and there was some injury and muscle memory things attached to that, but it was, it still remains one of the weirdest things I've covered. Uh, Philly has been, has their, their history with polarizing athletes, but there's just, it's, it's a constant never ending debate, which is why I made the joke when we first brought this up. Now, in terms of, this specific series, I don't think the Sixers and look, I think I think what you saw in the third quarter of game three will be there a lot for Ben Simmons if he wants to take advantage of it. I don't think they necessarily need him to because I think there's enough other areas of the Hawks that the Sixers can exploit. I mean, what is Tobias Harris shooting in a series like 60 percent and Joel Embiid's averaging 30 points and 15 free throw attempts per game or something absurd like yeah, that? I mean, they, they have no. In addition to MB, I, I probably haven't said it on this podcast yet. They have no answer for Harris right now at all without Hunter either. No. Like, so even the Embiid stuff is the most obvious, but without Hunter, they, they've tried to start Solomon Hill. I think expressly trying to guard Tobias, and that has obviously yeah. not gone very well. So, so the Sixers have enough that they can they can exploit without Ben Simmons pushing the issue. And there are quite frankly at times where it's like if Ben is attacking in the half court, like he's probably going to be less efficient than um, Embiid or Harris would be if 
they took their mismatches. So you don't have a big problem with this series. I think they can still uh, compete offensively against the Hawks without Simmons pushing it. But like I said, it's not... I think so much of... There's there's a, a portion of this Ben Simmons debate where it's like there's just some player or some analysts and some fans who, if you're not averaging 20 points per game, they don't believe you can be a star. And there's others who see the very obvious skill deficiencies that he has and he's never corrected. Um, and they get him on that. But for me, it's just like, when you have that layup, just take it, man. And like, we, and we saw when he came out in the third quarter, he made one hook shot or one, uh, no, I don't even think it was a hook shot. I think it was a, I think it was a high low from Embiid to Simmons where he got the layup, uh, where he was trying to front or was trying to post up and they were front of the post, but he got that one score. And all of a sudden you have Bogdanovich leaving Seth Curry wide open in the weak side corner which you can never do. The first double should never come from the corner, especially not when the guy in the corner is Seth Curry. But you can, if, if Ben is aggressive, he is such a good passer that teams will occasionally make mistakes and he can take advantage of those mistakes and six are a much more dangerous team. So it was nice to see in that third quarter. I don't expect it to be there in game four. I think he'll probably go back to not pushing the issue. Um, but I think he is obviously incredibly important for the Sixers in this series because there is he's really, really good at getting through those Atlanta screens and giving himself a chance to defend Trey Young. And that has changed the series. But going back to another thing you said in terms of hack, uh, hack a Ben, like he's shooting like 35% from the free throw uh, they line. Got, they got to do it, playoffs. right? Why are You've they gotta doing it? You got to try it. Like, <laughs> yeah, no. And it's very clear. And he spent the first half of the season, he was shooting about 65% from the free throw line. And everyone was like, great. We can stop having this conversation every time. Well, in the second half of the season, he shot right around 50% after the All-Star break. And from the playoffs, he's been shooting 35% and is very clearly in his head. If somebody, like, by not fouling him, you're basically letting him get away with it. Um, I would, yeah, I would, you're down. And I think Scott Brooks in the first round, even, I think they were tied when they started playing Hackaben. Um, I, it seems like you have to at least give it a shot. And not just, like, some, some coaches will uh, foul him once, and if he makes two, then run out of it, like, no, I would make him prove it that he is com- yeah. confident getting that free throw line because, I, quite frankly, he is very clearly not. Yeah, it's also just a math problem. I mean, especially with the way Philly is scoring in this series. It's not as if the Hawks are comfortable with just getting normal stops. Um, you know, they're giving up like 1.25 or whatever it is, points per possession for the whole series, and it was like 1.35 for most of Game 3. You know, Simmons has to be uh, a lot better than he currently is at the line to outdo that. And especially once you're on the bonus, you know, I, I think it's even more obvious when they are trailing in the second half. That's like the the flashing sign for me. But I, I wouldn't mind it early. Um, it, once you're in the bonus, like maybe you don't want to pile on fouls on guys that they, that you have to have that stay on the floor, but you could play you could play guys expressly to do that. You go offense only and also lean on that. So there are options. I don't know if McMillan's the kind of guy that's going to do that. But And honestly, no one wants to watch that. I'm not like, I understand that's like not great for entertainment purposes. But, you know, if you're the Hawks and you're trying to win a series, that might be your best bet to generate a a more efficient defensive uh, platform. Yeah, and look, game game four, you've got to pull out all the stops. This yeah. is all hands on deck. It's situation. kind of a must. I, I mean, absolutely. must wins an overused term, but if you're the Hawks and you go down three one, the series isn't uh, technically over. But down three one, you're already the underdog in the series, and two more games in Philadelphia. This is as close to a must win as it gets without being a must win uh, in game yep. four for the Hawks. So you have to know you have to know that going in, and uh, just trying to maybe have some of those David strategies and act like you're an underdog, which the Hawks just haven't really wanted to do. Which I understand, you know, you want to be confident and all that stuff, but. Knowing the math. Um, last thing before I let you get out of here, uh, 
Have you been going as crazy as I have about the bench versus bench wars in the first half, as if it's like a January game? Uh, yeah. But these coaches are very, very, very willing in a bizarre way. Like this is a, this is a second round playoff series, and if you turn it on at the right moment, it feels like it's December. It really does. Yeah, and that was something that we as Sixers fans debated all year because the Sixers bench has never really been consistent, and Doc has gone to all bench units pretty consistently throughout the regular season. At times, he would mix in Tobias Harris with four bench players or Ben Simmons with four bench players. Uh, None of those three sort of configurations have been good offensive teams, and I think that's been tough for the Sixers in this series because Dwight Howard cannot make the same kind of impact defensively in this series, especially when 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 the Hawks go to their you know sort of five out bench unit that he made in the regular season. So if you're not able to remain competitive defensively, all of a sudden you've got to be good offensively to keep up with the Hawks bench unit. And the Sixers certainly in the first six quarters of the series were not. Shake Milton got real hot late in the third quarter. Furkan got hot in game three. So it's looked okay since then. Um, but yeah, I am pretty surprised. And I think this is one area where, you know, in the past, how the Sixers sort of staggered their stars was they would keep um, Tobias Harris and Ben Simmons on the floor, shuffle in three bench players. Then they would bring Joel Embiid back towards the end of the first quarter and let him carry an all bench lineup. And that worked fine because Joel Embiid is incredible. Well, it's tough to do that now when Joel Embiid's backup is Dwight Howard because Dwight Howard and Ben Simmons do not fit at all, especially when you then throw in Matisse Thibel. There's just no shooting with that group. So I think it's been a little bit tougher to find the right pairings when you stagger that lineup, which I think has led to a little bit of these four or five bench player lineups. But I also think Doc likes trying to sort of build cohesive units and lets these guys play together as long as they can. And I think it's been tough to watch at times. Uh, And I'm surprised he hasn't shortened up his rotation. I mean, they're playing 11 guys at times. And I do think part of it is the fact that they have so many young perimeter players that you just don't know what you're going to get from, you know, at the beginning of the season, it was Tyree or not season series. It was Tyrese Maxey sort of in that role. He has struggled, so now it is Shake Milton back, um, but they just don't know who to rely on. So I think that increases their bench dependency more. But you know how you get more reliable young wing players and perimeter players? Play them with your stars so they don't have to do as much. And for Doc to continue to rely on these, I'm a little bit surprised. And I think a lot of Sixers fans are a little bit frustrated. Yeah, it's it's almost like uh, this, this happened in the first series too with the Hawks next series. It's almost like the, the coaches are being emboldened by the other because they they are uh, they're able to get by with it on some level because it's bench versus bench, so it's like less glaringly ridiculous, you know. Like if, <laughs> if McMillan's playing a full bench lineup against like you know I guess a non bench unit for Philadelphia, it's like you know you got to be kidding me. Whereas now I'm even guilty of this. I'm almost like excusing it a little bit more just a little bit more because it's like well philly's doing the same thing so yeah it's more i don't know it's it's, it's kind of funny to me i have my i have my eye rolling on a nightly basis right now but with the with the way that this six or starting lineup has been operating at like you need to win those minutes pretty heavily if you're the hawks yes agreed. Um, so yeah that's something they have to uh, focus on anyway we i take enough of your time and once you have any, anything else that you want to get off your chest you've not said so far uh, i will let you uh, sign off and tell people where they can find yourself i know you're at the athletic and uh, podcasting all that stuff no, I don't. I think I, I speak enough basketball where I have plenty of time to get stuff off my chest. So I am <laughs> at peace in that regard. Uh, but at Derek Bodner NBA, uh, mostly Sixers stuff, obviously, um, the athletic. Yeah. Links from there. 
What is your What is your podcast called? I have listened to um, it, but is the, it Sixers the Beat. The Sixers Beat. Yep. There, there you go. Check it very out. Very original. Very creative. Listen, um, listen. It's good for SEO. Uh, yeah, if nothing yes, else, is. they will uh, get you on SEO. Uh, but thank you, Derek. I appreciate you taking this time to do this in the middle of the uh, series. I know you're a very busy man, and I appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Thank you. As for everybody else, please subscribe to the podcast, and we'll see you next time.